Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Ulf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Ethan Liu, author of Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. In 2019, Ethan attended a blockchain conference in North Korea along with only seven other foreign attendees, one of whom was Virgil Griffith of Ethereum Foundation, who was arrested for alleged conspiracy in late 2019. In his book, Ethan gives a deep dive into his own crypto journey and how it's intersected with the likes of Virgil Griffith, Anthony DiOrio, and Gerald Cotton. Ethan, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're Great stoked to have a, a fellow Canadian or fellow member living in Canada here to join us. And I want to jump into the first paragraph in chapter one of your book, and it explains how you grew up in Western Germany, supported by your father's modest income. And you paint a bit of a picture of frustration over a lack of, you know, you, you talk about hand-me-downs being too big for you, and it's clear that money was was a bit of a challenge for your family growing up. My question is, do you think you would have paid attention to Bitcoin as closely and as early as you did if your upbringing looked different than it was? Mm -hmm. Probably no, but I don't think my upbringing could have been different uh, from what it was. And I don't just mean my specific circumstances, but also the circumstances of my generation as a whole. You know, we all grew up, uh, we all... Be became adults in the shadow of the 2008 financial crisis. And we have all been affected by that one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And um, in the book, it explains that you discovered Bitcoin uh, early on through the dark web. Now, for our audience, for those who aren't familiar, can you explain what the dark web is, why you were using it, <laughs> and uh, what your initial impression of Bitcoin was? So the dark web, it's a portion of the internet that's not readily accessible uh, from, by everyday people. It's, it's not really locked away. Uh, anyone can download a browser to, to use it. It's, it doesn't cost anything. And uh, there are also lots of legitimate uses for the dark web. And, you know, like Facebook has a Facebook as a dark web version of Facebook. So but, it's not just criminals. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's definitely more well known for the, the darker use cases. So right. uh, people used to sell all sorts of things on the dark web, uh, lots of drugs, and uh, lots of weapons. At one time, there was an alleged sex slave on sale. And I think that uh -huh. might have been fake, 
because there are also lots of dark web scams as mm. I, I actually encountered when I tried to buy LSD and then I, I, I paid, which wasn't a lot of money at the time. It was, I think only a hundred bucks, but that was 0.4 Bitcoins and that, that's lost forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, in the beginning, my friends and I were curious about the dark web. So we were on it and uh, that, that's when I discovered, uh, when I first heard about Bitcoin. So it was like 2012, 2013. And yeah, I, I, I did feel that there was some sort of value there because why do the dark web people use Bitcoin? It's because mm -hmm. it's person to person and there's no like central administrator there for the government to attack. Like they can't freeze your funds. And, you know, you may not agree with that specific use case, but you can clearly see that there is some sort of value to that when applied elsewhere. That said, beyond using it to buy some LSD, <laughs> were you, you know, did you wrap your mind around, um, you know, why Bitcoin might be valuable? Like, did, did you look at it as, hey, this is something maybe I'm interested in beyond the needs for it for this particular purpose right now? Or did you not really get into that side of like, um, Bitcoin until later on? Yeah, well, well, it's a bit of both. I think I saw a little bit of the wider value, but uh, not to a huge degree. Right. And, you know, maybe I saw it to like a three or a four, but I think eventually I got to a 10, but that definitely took a while. I think from when I first heard about Bitcoin to first buying Bitcoin, I think that was a whole year for me. And right. I don't think that's uh, exceptional. I think uh, lots of people, it, it takes them a while. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think even just relating to my own experiences, this guy introduced me to crypto and it was oh, the same thing. Where, yeah, <laughs> no oh, I've, I've thanked him. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, you know, he was telling me about it and how he had been buying it. And there's this, I feel like there's often a barrier for people that you kind of need to you need to start feeling comfortable enough with even the concept before you kind of jump in and maybe buy some. At least I think that tends to be how it goes. So I agree. It's not it's not a unique case totally. Yeah, 100%. So so this episode is set to release on October 18th, Monday, October 18th. On October 19th, your book comes out, which I mentioned in the bio. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what Once a Bitcoin Miner is all about if they want to check it out? Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's an epic quest through the cryptocurrency Wild West, which follows, uh, I want to say early investor, but I know the term is subjective. What is early? There are lots of people more OG than me, but I got in uh, around 2013 and follows my adventures through this space. And it's, uh, it's meant to read like a novel. So I, I'm a journalist. I, I have a column in the Financial Post. So I try to write it in a way that's driven by plot and character because I feel that I, I think crypto, lots of people look at it from the perspective of uh, purely from the perspective of like computer science or monetary policy. But I think uh, you strip away all of that at the heart of that. There is this aspect of the human condition that's uh, created with that. And I think that's not explored enough. So and that's what I try to uh, do through the book to tell the story of crypto um, through the human condition. 
And like just based on the title alone, is it a series of your own stories of what you like, you know, the scandal part of it? Is that things that you personally experienced or are you telling uh, tales of just general stories that are noteworthy, you know, within Bitcoin's journey? It's a little bit of both. And uh, when I tell stories that are noteworthy, uh, they are also stories that touch upon my life. Uh, there are stories in which uh, I walk through, for example, the, the North Korea episode. Mm. Um, that was actually quite a shock. That wasn't supposed to be in the book. I, huh. I, I went to North Korea thinking that I, I did not expect that event to make any news at all. But yeah, as, as all of us know, it just spiraled out of control. Mm -hmm. At what point did you know you were going to start writing this book? Like, I mean, was it right away in 2013, 2014, where you're like, there's some crazy things happening here. And with your writing background, your journalism background, you were kind of always thinking the long game that you'd write a book about this. Or was it later on where you're like collecting all of these memories where you're like, maybe I should put pen to paper here? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of both. I think it's like how like writing a book is like how I got into crypto. Like I, I first, you know, heard of Bitcoin 2012, 2013, took me like a whole year to actually, actually do it, actually invest. And so I, I had the idea of writing a book, like the vague idea of it in 2014, but, you know, I, I didn't really do anything to try to uh, accomplish that. Um, so the, the deal for the book that was signed uh, early 2019. And I, I started making a proposal in 2018, but yeah, it's, uh, so it's kind of like that, a, a bit of a process. Um, during your first journalism stint in, uh, St. John, you interviewed Anthony Diorio. How did that conversation with Anthony have an impact on you and, and your outlook on, on cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and everything like that? Uh, so 2013, that was uh, my my first conversation, I think, with someone who knew what they were talking about with respect to crypto. And we had a quite a, a wide ranging discussion. And I think Anthony Diorio, he saw a lot, a lot more wider uses and more uh, big, bigger ideas beyond, beyond simply, you know, the, the price. And, and this was pre Ethereum. But at the time, I, I don't think I knew much. And the only thing I understood was number go up. And thus, and Anthony actually made a price prediction. And lots of people don't like doing that because they end up on the wrong side of history. Mm. Uh, that price prediction that he made, it turned out to be correct. And toward the end of 2013, that was when I first bought crypto, uh, Bitcoin. And... Yeah, I don't even think there were many other different coins back then. Hmm. And but right after I bought, it was at a thousand, and it basically fell to like five hundred within, I think, within a month. Yeah. Oh, wow. And at the time, I was thinking like, well, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah, no just kidding. Goodbye. <laughs> so, so one of the other personalities or, or individuals who is pretty common or pretty well known in the space that you mentioned early in the book is Gerald Cotton, the founder or co-founder of Quadriga CX. And as we know, or for those who have paid attention to the story, that was a very interesting and tragic, but also controversial potentially thing with, with Quadriga and with Gerald allegedly dying in India. Some people 
don't believe he actually died. There's been whole podcasts about this controversy and that kind of thing. From someone who actually met Gerald in those early days, what was he like and what do you make of the whole Quadriga story? Well, he definitely appeared to to be someone who was running a clean shop. I, I can tell you that I did not have any suspicion of all that all that we have heard since that, you know, he has been uh, taking users money and using it to gamble on his own personal risky trades Mm -hmm. and uh, about how, just how shady Quadriga was in general and how he had been running scams uh, when he were, when he was a teenager. So at the time I actually thought it was pretty inspiring. You know, Mm -hmm. he, uh, he, he was kind of all in in crypto. You know, at the time I was writing this thing about, people taking salaries in crypto and he was quite enthusiastic uh about being the first few first few people to raise the hand when i asked the question i was like yeah i make all my money in crypto <laughs> um yeah i i just totally did not expect what happened and i know there are that there are doubts as to whether he really died and at one point there was this guy from russia who was trying to sell me what he said was proof that gerald cotton did not die and I might have been a scam, but mm. but you, you know the there there is quite a lot of uh, intrigue and suspicion in this case. What do you think? Oh, I I have no idea. So I I, I did hear though that there is going to be a book out by by his widow, Jennifer and, Robertson. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a go it's a ghost written book. So the the publisher signed on like a professional writer. To, to write it with her mm. and that guy's pretty legit so i i think if uh if he didn't actually die uh it'll be quite a lot of egg on the guy's face oh, and yeah. it, it's harper collins it's like a legitimate publisher so that adds credence to to the i guess the idea that he did actually die but you know i don't know for certain hmm. what do and you then- guys think <laughs> <laughs> well i i had some funds in quadriga so that part of me was frustrated i actually remember it was interesting and you allude to this in your book at one point but withdrawals through cibc at one point one of our banks in canada were delayed while they were looking into some of the things and i was part of that i remember typically it was like a 48 hour withdrawal and i was waiting like 35 days and that was i had taken a significant very significant at the time for myself chunk of that out and it was coming into my Canadian bank account. So those were a nervous 35 days as I waited, but that was my my personal experience with it. But it's like you said, I mean, I have no, I never met Gerald, anything along those lines. So it's all speculation, but some of the things in the past that you hear, especially through, uh, there was a, a podcast by C- CBC called Death in Crypto Land. And they interview some people who remember Gerald and talking about how he was going to, you know, run these scams and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit suspect for sure, but tough to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I had money on Quadriga as well. So at the time, it wasn't worth a lot. It was just like worth 2000. So I, I think you had fiat on it, right? So I had crypto. Uh, mine were like 13 ethers. 
which yeah. which is a good chunk of change today. Today, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, in general, though, going you know whether it was meeting Anthony, whether it was meeting Gerald, those were done at these meetups. How essential were those in the early days of having these kind of in person gatherings where you could just talk about what was happening with the technology? I think that is absolutely essential because I have always thought about this, that without the internet, and I know without the internet, you can't send Bitcoin, but if Bitcoin can function without the internet, it would not have taken off without the internet because of it. these communities wouldn't form. Because I have many crypto friends, but I have very few friends that I knew before crypto that are actually into crypto. So like 90% of my crypto friends, I knew them through crypto, through right. uh you know, through our common interests and without the internet, we, yeah, we would not have met. And what did these meetups look like? Like, I mean, I'm somebody who never really attended in-person meetups that they weren't something I was aware of. I think Kelowna had some where, where Alf and I are based, had some meetups at one point. I don't think currently there are any, at least any well-known ones, but like, what do you expect? Like, do you show up and is there an agenda or is it just casual, like having some beers and chatting about what's happening with Bitcoin? Yeah, it's very casual. Uh, I think most have no agendas and some of them are very weird. There was this, (laughs) (laughs) this one meetup I went to in Calgary. So I moved to a new city. I was gonna, trying to find people who are into crypto. So I went to this meetup and it was advertised as a Bitcoin workshop. It's called workshop. And I saw this sign advertising this thing called iPro. And at the time I didn't know what it was, but I Googled it. It's people linked it to one coin. It's like a MLM kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I I don't know what came over me. I, I sat through like the whole morning of it and People were quoting like Bible verses, their their presenters. Like the guy was saying, oh, uh, trust trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. (laughs) Yeah, like that left a very sour taste in my mouth. And toward the end of 2019, uh, IPRO was sued by the SEC. Yeah, I don't think it matters if it's in... Uh, the land of crypto or not, MLM scams are <laughs> MLM scams. So, Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So one of the big things I want to chat to you about, Ethan, is your trip to North Korea. You mentioned that barely made it in the book, but that has turned into such an interesting and I mean, reading that excerpt from the book, it's just it, it's such a, a crazy experience, or it certainly reads that way. And so I guess the first question before we get into Virgil Griffith is what led you to, to make that trip to travel to North Korea? What inspired you to attend that particular conference? So there are basically two reasons. Uh, one is a personal interest. And two, I think more relevant to this is that we have all been reading a lot about what North Korea has been up to with crypto. It's doing accused of doing lots of shady stuff. And when North Korea announced the conference, I thought this was an opportunity to see for myself. I thought I'd be able to like listen to presentations by, by North Korean, uh, North Korean crypto people. I, w- I wanted to, uh, to see and understand what they were trying, what they were trying to do. Uh, of course, it turned out to be the exact opposite of uh, what I expected. 
How so for, mm-hmm. for those who maybe haven't read the article or that excerpt? Mm-hmm. So it turns out the conference wasn't for people to to like receive information from the North Koreans. They expected us to present to them. And I, I think some of the foreign attendees, uh, there were there were eight of us. And some of us were they they went in knowing that they were going to be presenters, like only one or two of them. Mm. Most of us were we were we thought we were participants, you know, we go there and but in fact we were told, hey, you are the conference. And lots of people just made up just made up stuff on the spot. <laughs> As I understand it, you you actually um declined basically their offer to be a presenter which came out of nowhere for you um so what was that i mean what was that like to be put on the spot and say okay we want you to speak now and then you choose not to did you were you now sitting there in an audience and watching your other who you thought were other people just coming to attend the conference now they're speaking i mean that must have been an awkward situation yeah well so even though I didn't speak, they didn't put me in the audience. Oh, All didn't. the foreigners were still put together. So <laughs> how the conference was structured was that it, imagine like a, a really big conference room mm-hmm. and in the center was this table. And every when the conference began, everyone would be already in the room. And when it starts, they would lead us in and everybody would watch us come in. <laughs> And then we would all we would sit around that table in the center, <laughs> yeah. But you you know I, I I think at the time I did think that perhaps uh, presenting about crypto to North Koreans it's not that good an idea. But I definitely didn't feel it to a very strong degree. You know mm-hmm. it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a very like firm and emphatic no when I declined the thing. It was more of a case where, you know, I had some doubts and I asked quite a lot of questions. And I think the organizers were of the view that, you know, if you don't want to present it, it's totally fine. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description. And back to the episode. And what uh, can you, for audience who hasn't read this, that there is some, you know, there's news on this that's available already. But the whole story with Virgil Griffith can you break that down? You know, what has happened um, that's now all public knowledge and just share that story? Because you were very much a part of it. You were there for everything that happened. Virgil, I think he's quite unique among the, the participants because he's an American. And mm. Americans, they can't go to North Korea without explicit permission because there was a case of a young man. He went there and 
and he allegedly stole a poster or something and he he got detained by North Korea and ultimately he died upon return. So uh, the US just banned all everyone from going to North Korea. And so Virgil, he he sought permission from the State Department and they they denied him and he was like, I'm going to go anyway. Um, and I guess that's how his trouble started because uh, right as he was going, the uh, his government knew that he was going. And I think even though there was this ban, North Korea, despite how cloistered it is, it's still open up to tourists. And I think lots of Americans probably just go there all the time. And, and you know, the government closes an eye and opens an eye. And But for Virgil, I think they thought it was an extra big deal because, um, again, unique among all the all the eight participants i don't think any of us were like real big shots in crypto but mm. he was he was you know head of special projects at the ethereum foundation and i think they paid extra attention to him as a result and north korea ultimately this is uh to the u.s government this is a national security case and so virgil goes he joins with you there's the seven or sorry maybe it was eight of you um as foreigners you come in and you've now been asked to speak at this conference. Um, and so Virgil, he does he does present in some way, shape or form. He does some sort of presentation. And what was the outcome of that from that point forward? Yeah, I should say that Virgil, um, this report in uh, I think I read in Decrypt that someone talked to someone who who knew Virgil and before going to North Korea, he was telling everyone he was going to give a keynote. So uh, it, it's likely that Virgil knew he was going to speak when he went in. I see. Okay. And yeah, but anyway, um, even in North Korea, he was telling us that he was going to meet with the state department officials when he gets back to mm. tell them about the trip. And, you know, a Virgil, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. He, uh, I, I think he's extremely smart and he's very open, very curious. And, I don't think he expected that when the State Department's wanted State Department officials wanted to talk to him that they were that they were possibly going to refer the case to the Justice Department or something. I don't think he realized that uh, the the Justice Department was after him until it right. was too late. Hmm. Like he was naive to just how serious they were taking it in his eyes. Maybe it was all going to be okay and. He was going to explain himself and would have no more worries thereafter. But that's clearly not what happened. Um, can you explain the now kind of what's happened recently uh, as an outcome of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess before I do that, I, I do want to address what you said, which is which is a very good point that I don't think he suspected anything because the defense says that what was presented at the conference is just publicly available information. And, you know, having been there, I, I tend to agree. It was just stuff that you can read on Wikipedia. Right. Uh, but ultimately, to the government, it doesn't matter. The prosecution has said that, so what if it's publicly available? You know, if uh, if uh, you can have an engineering textbook and the information in there is publicly available, but, you know, maybe the student doesn't understand it. And if the professor elucidates that for the student, the professor has done the student a service. So that's what the prosecution's saying. And ultimately the charge against Virgil is that he had the intent of, of helping North Korea, 
and he acted on the intent. So whether he actually achieved any tangible benefit for North Korea, that's kind of immaterial. And so uh, with respect to the latest developments, it's uh, six and a half years, uh, up to six and a half years in a plea deal, which was very unexpected. Um, Ultimately, the judge isn't bound by the six and a half years. So he's going to be sentenced next year in January and could be anything. Have you spoken to Virgil since the North Korea trip or was it just that that kind of intersection where you were both at that conference or do you guys keep in communication? So uh, I I didn't know Virgil before the trip and we, we didn't keep much in communication other than one instance when he reached out to me and very proactively returned a hundred bucks that I lent him, which I thought was very cool of him. I think you can infer a lot about a man by how they deal with their debts. Mm-hmm. But afterward, I, I did speak to his lawyers and I, I had said, you know, if this goes to trial, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to testify. And I think a whole bunch of other people from the trip, they did the same, but um, I, I have not spoken to Virgil himself. So I want to go back to you making the decision to attend this. Um, and, and you mentioned that you've had that, that kind of inner curiosity of, of North Korea in general and wanting to travel there for that. But did you have any fear in your mind? Like you mentioned, you decided, okay, it's maybe not the best idea to present here, but did you fear at all even attending the conference could be construed somehow negatively or was that not on your radar as a concern? It's something I thought about, but I I wouldn't say it's something that I was afraid of because people, people go to North Korea all the time, you know, that are, tourism agencies. And I have, in fact, had had this on my bucket list for quite a while. And there was 2014, I I plan on going for the, the Pyongyang Marathon. So the act, North Korea actually has a marathon every year. And I, I actually trained for the marathon. I thought I was going to go for it, but then they, uh, they banned foreigners because of Ebola. Oh, so, but, so this is something that I, I thought I thought of doing for a while. Right. And then so once you're there, you mentioned that sometimes there's this preconceived notion that North Korea is incredibly advanced when it comes to or that they're honing in on on cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And then your actual experience wasn't that at all. And you kind of question in your book, was that on purpose, that facade, or was that actually the reality and, and everyone's in thoughts of how the country is as misguided? What, can you kind of explain in depth how those contrasted together? Yeah. Yeah. First, I want to say it It doesn't necessarily have to be either or. It could be both. So right. uh, it was definitely very backwards by our standards. The electricity went out several times and hmm. at my hotel, which is supposed to be a very good hotel. And the conference was only two days and they took us around, um, you know, I think the whole thing was basically a glorified tourism trip. So they took us to their teacher's college and I could see that they were using an unactivated version of windows and yeah. And they took us to their factories and uh, they, they flaunted at length, just completely unspectacular technology. Hmm. And I remember they showed us this 3d film and you know, nice and 3d but it wasn't very spectacular and i don't know why they were so proud of it and there was this arcade game 
I don't, there were no levels, no objectives, you know, you just, you had a gun and you just shot cows. <laughs> I, I don't know what the point of that was. <laughs> like they stopped you at these things. It was like, Hey, here's an activity to do. Go try this cool arcade game we've built. Oh yeah. Well, uh, to be fair to them, they had a whole bunch of other arcade games there. I'm okay. probably describing the worst. <laughs> Maybe you got right, the worst right, one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, I, I talked to our North Korean minders and they were like, uh, Oh, we don't know anything about Bitcoin and crypto. Everyone outside is just lying about North Korea, which mm. probably is not true. Mm. But I know I don't doubt that. I was shown like a, a very small and carefully curated part of the country. Interesting. One of the um, the great advantages for for Alf and I about talking to someone like yourself who's been in the space for such a long time, like. I think 2013 is definitely OG territory. We can safely say that. But what do you make of of just in general from where you've seen Bitcoin to how the space has evolved up until now? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, it's definitely changed a lot. And I, I, would, uh, I would first come at it from the perspective of someone in the media. Mm. And I remember when I first wrote about Bitcoin, uh, 2013, uh, I had to write this long explainer about what the hell Bitcoin is. And, and you know, throughout the years, and you, you, if you look at story, news stories from around that time, everyone, a huge, long, long explainer, what is Bitcoin, what is blockchain? But you see that explanation getting smaller and smaller mm. as it progresses. And now when you write a new story, you can just introduce Bitcoin just like that mm. because in, it's established as a thing. And it's, you know, that's a... That's a symbol of something that Bitcoin is becoming increasingly, and and crypto, the whole space in general is becoming increasingly mainstream. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask, because we've talked a lot about um, your trip to North Korea. We've talked a lot about sort of the story behind that, a little bit about Quadriga, just at least at a high level. um, As far as interest for your book goes, for anyone who's listening, are there any sort of highlights or other stories that you can give us just a, a brief touch on uh, as maybe a little teaser for why why we might want to read in and get a little deeper into the stories you have to share? Hmm. There is this other story that that is a, an excerpt of it is going to come out in the Financial Post in Canada soon. It's about a case currently before the ASC, which is the uh, Alberta Securities Commission. And so it's set within this little, I guess maybe by American standards is a little town, but it's, it's a very big city in Canada. It's Calgary, uh, 1 million people, but it, it's set there. And it basically revolves around this, um, the local crypto scene. Mm-hmm. And it's about this thing called uh, a whale club. Some, there was a investment fund started there and it, it rose quite rapidly against the 2017 Bitcoin boom. There was a lot of hype, a lot of activity. There was so much hope. And, but ultimately everything kind of ends in ruin. Mm. And that, that's one of the stories I depict. And it's uh, set against uh, the, the larger context, I think, uh, of looking at this in the lens of the human condition. Mm. And I think lots of, uh, you know, Lots of, lots of people look at it as something as either you purely look at it in the technical lens, 
you know, you look at it from the computer science perspective, or you look at Bitcoin and crypto through the monetary policy perspective. But this is a book that is driven by character and plot. And it, I try to look at it from the, the human condition perspective. When we look towards the future now, um, you know, you got into this when it was basically just Bitcoin on the scene. Now there's all these other cryptocurrencies, there's NFTs, DeFi, you know, what do you think the future is for cryptocurrency in general? Or what are, maybe I should say, what are you most excited about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 there are also lots of things I'm not excited about. Maybe I should talk well, about maybe that. Maybe talk about Don't that. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah I, I think when you look at what's happening in the US, regulators are getting uh, increasingly hawkish. And it, I don't think it's... Uh, specific target on crypto it's not a specific crosshair painted on the backs of uh you know the, the crypto people but it's it, i think it reflects the wider priorities of the current administration and i think it's something that's going to continue we are going to see more of this you know uh with uh coinbase's disputes with the regulators and uh the whole uh tether settlement and we are yeah, I think we're going to see the regulators like put more of their power into dealing with crypto. And I think, you know, they say for a, for any action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think DeFi is something that's going to take off in a, in, in a bigger way than now. I think one example I would point to is when Shapeshift said it's going to dissolve its corporate structure and become a, become a DAO. And mm. And with a specific aim of trying to thwart regulators and, you know, whether, whether how successful it will be, that remains to be seen. But I think we'll see more of that. Awesome. Well, Ethan, this has been such a good conversation. We're really excited to read the full. I've read part of your book. I can't wait to finish it, read the whole thing. But we like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three questions for every guest. It's a little segment we call You Had Me at Crypto. Alf's going to ask you those questions. Mm -hmm. All right, Ethan. So the first question here, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Mm -hmm. I follow (laughs) Niraj. Niraj Mm. Agrawal, I think uh, the... I think Coin Center guy, yeah, he's uh, he's funny as hell. He yeah. Makes me laugh. <laughs> nice, awesome. All right, second question: uh, What will the price of Bitcoin be ten years from now? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've given me like a, a far enough uh, horizon that I, I can safely say it'll be like a, a million or more. But I, I should say that when Bitcoin reaches a million bucks. Uh, it's not going to be all because of Bitcoin's appreciation. A large mm. part of it will be the depreciation of the dollar. Right. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You know, we get so many uh, answers to that question where around like million is kind of the number. And I'm so curious where we'll be. Technically, we've got some that are already a year into this 10 year yeah. uh, prediction. So we'll see where we're at at the time. But uh, all right, so the third question here, uh, what is the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 I want to say, uh, huh. well, the, the, the name of it is actually escaping me. And I think that speaks to how underrated it is. Fair, <laughs> there you go. Fair. Uh, 
What's the general project about kind of thing? So this this is I want to preface this by saying that I I don't I don't know that much about the coin and but I only know like the the gist of what I heard and the the basic idea appealed to me but mm. how it's how it's actually applied it I, I can't speak to that so um, I think when you when you make a transaction you're actually mining two other uh, you're mining two other transactions. So the basic idea is that this coin, it will, it's, I guess it, it's efficient. Um, but um, again, I, I'm not sure how, how well it operates uh, in, in practice. Right, right. Well, the concept sounds interesting to say the least. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. yeah it's like at, at, at the tip of my tongue, you know, I just... I'm I'm very embarrassed. I forgot the name. No, no, it's all. <laughs> it happens to everyone. Trust yeah. me, I've dealt with that so many times. So don't even worry about it. Well, the good news for our audience is that your book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, comes out Tuesday, October nineteenth. Quick question: Where where can they find it? Is it going to be Amazon or is it in bookstores or where is the best place? Well, it can be found wherever you buy your books. But I always say this: if you hate Amazon, you can try your local independent bookstore because. Okay. I don't hate Amazon with a 10, but maybe I hate it with a five or a six. So I'm still okay shopping on Amazon, but if you don't like Amazon, try a local bookstore. There we go. Love it. Support the local. Thank you so much, Ethan, for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.